everybody. Welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. I'm live here in Austin, Texas for Consensus 2022. And the number one question is Bitcoin over 30. What do you guys think? Just kidding. All right. We're in the green room. We're going to do quick introductions. Um, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Ashtar. And of course, uh, we'll go through our guests as well. So David, where are you dialing in from, calling in from, zooming in from? And what the heck are we talking about today? Coming to you live from Washington, D.C., Ray. Great to be here with you and Vala. Um, really talking about how one needs to be both a disruptor and also recognize we still need compliance. Uh, in an era in which norms are being tossed out the window left and right, there is still a place for compliance, whether you're in a company, in a government setting, or just in a nonprofit or community setting. Oxymoronic heresy. Next. Oh, uh, well, by the end of the show, we'll show you that you have to recognize that only a cis believes in absolutes. We've got to navigate this together. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> That's awesome. Josh, where are, you, where are you coming in from? And uh, what are we talking about today? Oh, oh I can get Josh off mute. Josh, where are we calling in from? And what are we talking about today? Hi, I'm Joshua Goldbard. I'm normally calling in from San Francisco, but I'm actually in Berlin today. I'm also here to talk about compliance and the purpose or the, uh, the value of privacy in cryptocurrency transactions. So I'm really excited to talk about that today. Wow, we're talking about intersectionality here, privacy, crypto, and compliance. Oh my God, we're upping the ante. Sharon, what are we talking about today? Where are you calling them from? Hey, um, I am coming to you live from Washington, D.C., and I'm going to increase this intersectionality, and I'm going to be talking about uh, ESG compliance impact disruption, but also what the future of compliance looks like and why resilience matters. Oh my, we've upped the ante with a fourth yes. intersection. All right, back to you, Hannah. Let's get started. All right, three, two, one. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Paula Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter on Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital and, and uh, author of Disrupting Digital Business. He contributes to ZDNet. His latest book is Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television and business technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. He's also a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWNG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. 
Hey, thanks a lot. Here are my awesome co-host, co-founder, Vala Ashkar, the chief digital evangelist of Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, and executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. When he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading at Salesforce and jet-setting around the world, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. So, but it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests today. And who do we have to kick it off today, Vala? It is good to be home, Ray. Uh, it's an honor for us to have Sharon McPherson, former WEN CEO, and now launching a new startup, Green Jobs Machine. A reformed investment banker and Wall Street attorney, Sharon is the co-founder and CEO of the Green Jobs Machine, a resilient tech company committed to helping communities globally thrive in adverse climate conditions. Sharon is a leading expert on the impact of advancing technology that drives sustainable growth and development. Sharon's co-founder and former CEO of one of Africa's largest women's infrastructure investment group, The Wind uh, Consortium, Women in Infrastructure Development and Energy. Sharon is founding director of Singularity University, South Africa, an uh, accomplished public speaker, moderator, published author with a lifetime interest in building better communities. Enough, and enough. <laughs> I had to shorten your bio. You've done a lot. Thank you, please. <laughs> please follow Sharon on Twitter at, at MC Sharon, S H A R R O N. Welcome, Sharon, to Disrupt TV. Welcome, welcome to the show. And as you know, one of the hot topics we're all talking about right now is ESG and ESG compliance. Constellation just announced the ESG 50. And, and we've been really looking at the balance between stakeholder and shareholder capitalism to get to pragmatic ESG approach. But we're seeing all across the board, compliance is unlocked. It's an important key to unlocking a better world. Um, and what does that mean? And how do you define that? And where do you see that, Sharon? Well, you know, it's interesting and I'm sure everyone's been, you know, following and, you know, some of us are painfully aware of the launch by the U.S. Uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, of the task force. Right. I mean, and and I'm sure our, our followers, our listeners, our viewers are also aware of the raid on Deutsche Bank not long ago. I mean, so, yes. so some things are like really happening in terms of ESG compliance. You know, but before I go any deeper, um, Ray, I just want to just say, listen, let's be clear. How do I define ESG, you know, and, 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 and why does it matter? So I think of ESG uh, reporting really as a practice where firms, organizations, both private and public, that are really interested in financial performance. This is a practice that says, listen, I'm pursuing the single bottom line, but this is how I'm actually impacting the, the, the planet and people in a nutshell. So I just wanted to set that as a as a baseline so that as we go deeper, you know, talking about ESG compliance and what's happening and connecting the dots to disruption, you know, we've got a baseline. And so, you know, I'm going to link it in 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 my answer to your question to one of the biggest factors that's driving disruption, and that's climate. And so, you know, before the pandemic, it was all about, you know, next generation technologies, exponentially growing technologies. And everybody was worried about, like, you know, how, techno how technological innovation was really going to disrupt their business. Like, who's going to eat my lunch? Then climate came along and disrupted everybody. And, you and know, ate everybody's lunch. <laughs> ate everyone's lunch. And, you know, and um, digital transformation was a, a strategic response to that form of disruption, right? We haven't even begun 
to understand how climate is going to disrupt us. I sit on the board of an insurance company, and one of the things that I know for sure is that there's there are entire industries right now that are just being disrupted by climate catastrophes. I mean, 30% of headline earnings, whoop, right off the top, because we've had a, an adverse climate event, everybody's filing insurance claims, and reinsurers insurers are like, how are we going to deal with this? So this is yep. serious stuff that we're talking about. Linking it back to why compliance matters. I think carrots and sticks are important. And I think without real teeth, like what the uh, SEC is introducing, then, you know, the frameworks that say, hey, guys, you know, you need to do this. But listen, shareholders are saying, excuse me, um, CEO of HSBC, you say something like, you know, climate is highly exaggerated and bye bye you know, he was fired the same day, right? And so I think shareholder action is going to continue to drive, I think, um, certainly moves like what we're seeing from the uh, US SEC and other uh, entities all over the world saying it's no longer nice to have, you better do it. And I think a big reason why that's happening is because we're increasingly understanding that climate change is a real thing. We're facing an existential threat. And if we don't do something about it, and put the pressure as funders on companies, then we all are going to suffer negative consequences as a result of failure to comply. I can I can uh, totally uh, double down on that. I, I, I was recently in Spain, visiting the biggest companies in, in in Spain across multiple sectors. So number of energy companies, largest energy companies in the country. So I expected climate, ESG, sustainability to be a topic, but I also had discussion with CEOs of telecommunication companies, retailers, media companies. Sustainability was a common thread with a dozen or so multi-billion dollar organizations that I had the privilege of meeting with. So 100% boardroom uh, conversation, top of mind for CEOs um, from Spain, uh, my, my most recent trip. My question, Sharon, what is the difference between ESG and impact investing and, and why does it matter? Thank you. Um, thank you for that, Vala. That's a, that's an excellent question. And I think it's an, it's one of those things like, you know, what I said before, you know, we, we think we really understand ESG, but we'd be surprised. I mean, you know, I sit on boards, I've been the CEO of company, and quite often in the C-suite and in the boardroom, we actually really don't know what we're talking about. We think we do, but we really don't. So thank you for that question. The way that I think of the difference, so I've told you what I think about ESG and how I just define it in a way that just everyone can get their mind around. This is my business. I'm I need to be profitable to stay in business. And I need to also figure out how am I impacting the planet and people, ESG. And I've got a, a framework that I need to adhere to in order to report. My shareholders care and increasingly the regulatory authorities that I must uh, report to, they care to. Um, and so I think of impact investing as part of what is going to continue to drive uh, compliance. Because if we um, who sit in the funding community don't say, okay, as shareholders, as funders, as the LPs to those GPs who are managing our assets, if we don't say, hey, we care about this too, and we're going to continue to put pressure on you to do the right thing, not because it's just the right thing to do, but because it's the smart thing to do, then you're not going to have a business. End of story, full stop. And so I think of impact investing as being on a spectrum. Um, it can it can start with pure philanthropy. We only care 
about impact and we don't really have, you know, maybe you'll pay us back, maybe you won't, or here's a grant, you never have to pay us back. Mm -hmm. To at the other end of the spectrum, um, entities, both private and public, that say, hey, we care about environmental, social governance issues, um, but we also care about financial return. So at the other end of the spectrum are companies that are really about the single bottom line, but they also care about the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profits. And so you can find yourself someplace in between, but the fact of the matter is, is that you better be on that spectrum. Otherwise, I think your shareholders, the public, your clients, the regulators are going to be on you. And this is a shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, because you mentioned people. People are employees, customers, business partners, communities. Now a stakeholder, at least in my company, when we define stakeholders, planet Earth is part of the stakeholder definition. So we're tying impact and investments into a, 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 perhaps a cultural shift that really goes beyond just shareholder value and really looks at stakeholder value. Um, I love that. Um, I would I would say um, unequivocally yes, and 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 even within the impact investing asset class, you know, I mean, you know, I was an impact investor when people were like, "Listen, lady, what is this? Is this a nonprofit or is this a profit?" And I'm like, "Hello, that's a false paradox. Why can't we like do good, save the world, and make money?" If we're so smart, like, why does it have to be either or? And so I think that there's lots of interesting developments. I think we're evolving in terms of our understanding of what is impact investing and how do we get it right? I think we are increasingly understanding that in order to get impact investing right, we've got to continue to create and innovate and understand that our, our the people that we care about. Yeah. includes the planet, includes other, and, and, and how do we continue to be creative? I mean, we created venture capital as an asset class. We created private equity. You know, we created, you know, we, we created a nonprofit and a, the same way that we created those things, we can continue to create. And I think um, because of the challenges that we're facing relating to disruption, um, it's forcing us to be more creative and to understand that we've got to have a systems thinking approach to how we solve. Uh, getting the you know, Sharon, that, that's a really good point, right? That systems thinking approach is, is definitely going to play a role. We're going to bring you back in in about okay. uh, a little bit, and we'll bring in our other guests uh, to kind of ask what they're at, what they're doing, and we'll come to the point, especially a point around ESG compliance and jobs. So when we bring you back, we will do that. So so yeah, so let's go to our next guest, Vala. Who we have? Yeah, it's uh, it's great that Sharon reminds us that values can create value. Um, and part of the having uh, broader values is thinking about uh, climate. Our next guest is uh, Joshua Goldbart, founder and CEO of MobileCoin. Uh, Joshua's founder and CEO of MobileCoin, a cryptocurrency technology company and a founding partner, partner of Crypto Lotus and cryptocurrency focused hedge fund. Uh, MobileCoin is the only mobile first uh, planet friendly payment platform built ground up for true digital cash with all the benefits of physical cash. Uh, I love Josh's LinkedIn profile. I'm kind of actually counting on this. Uh, he says in his LinkedIn profile, I enjoy working on hard problems and explaining difficult concepts in simple terms. I really can benefit from that in this segment. You can follow uh, Joshua on Twitter at the PBX guy, T-H-E-P-B-X-G-U-Y. Welcome Joshua to Disrupt TV. Super glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. 
Yeah, we're excited to have you here. I mean, low gas fees, no gas fees, and decentralized. I'm kidding. All in one spot. Uh, but hey, let's start there. I mean, hey, welcome to the show, and welcome. Thanks for coming in from Berlin. And uh, let's go back to that point where we're talking with Sharon. It's really about compliance, right? And you know, you care about compliance. Like of, of all things, I would not think crypto CEO, founder, startup. <laughs> you know, someone in this Web three space would care about compliance, and you wear it on your sleeve every day. So, what is compliance? Why is it important? Yeah. Yeah. So at MobileCoin, what we're trying to deliver is the maximum amount of privacy possible within the rule of law. And in order to do that, we have to make sure that the money that we're building is not only easy to use, fast, carbon negative, but also that you can spend it anywhere. And that doesn't happen without compliance. In order to be able to spend your money at the places that you want to around the world, to interact with the banking infrastructure, to interact with merchants, you need to be able to have compliance to prove where the money came from and to interact with institutions. Now that's separate from peer-to-peer -peer transactions, which actually have a different sort of regulatory guidelines or different sort of regulatory controls. The peer-to-peer -peer transactions are governed uh, by different laws. And so I think that what we focus on is delivering the maximum amount of privacy within the rule of law. And so compliance is a big part of our business in order to do that. If we don't have compliance, you can't interact with banks, you can't interact with exchanges, you can't spend the money. So portability, accessibility, and actual usage is all grounded in strong compliance. I have, I guess, a two-part question. How did you get involved in crypto and when? Because, um, uh, you, know, you know, you're a pioneer compared to me. And, uh, and you know, you normally would be dialing in from San Francisco and now you're dialing in from Berlin. So you're traveling the globe to understand the the context and the complexities around compliance. How does compliance vary when you travel from one, one, you know, one part of the earth to another? So when did you start? Why did you start? And how does compliance vary as you, as you, as you, as you do business in different countries? Sure. So I got my start in crypto uh, around 2015. Wow. And in 2015, wow. I basically had a friend of mine who said, hey, Josh, uh, you know, you just got laid off from a job. Take your severance check and put it into Ethereum. And if you lose the money, I'll give it back to you. <laughs> Josh, dinner's that, on you. I, you invested in you know, Ethereum in 2015. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Actually, your friend rocks. Who is your friend? Yeah, 2015. <laughs> it was my friend Kevin who I ended up starting Crypto Lotus with. Um, but nice. basically I, that was my way that I got into uh, cryptocurrency. And that was actually the first time in my life that I wasn't living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And so it was the first time that I could sort of think about what I wanted to do in the world. And I decided that cryptocurrency was by far the craziest thing that I had ever seen. And so I started this crypto hedge fund and I'm reviewing, reviewing like every cryptocurrency deal that's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, I realized that no one is making an easy to use consumer product. Like, why isn't there just a super easy to use cryptocurrency that's on a cell phone? And so I, I keep talking about this and I keep hoping that somebody's just going to bring me that deal so I can invest in it. And it never ends up materializing. And so at a certain point, I, I made a joke to a friend of mine who's a really smart engineer. He's a cryptographer. And he said, you know, Josh, cryptocurrencies are terrible. And I said, but what if, what if I did a really good one? And he just said, that would be hard. We went back and forth and 12 hours later, we had Rift and made the uh, first version of the MobileCoin white paper. It was three pages long. And I basically started showing that to investors and they said, that's not the worst idea I've ever heard. And it was 2017 <laughs> at that time. And so they ended up you know, writing a $30 million check. And so 
wow. there I was having never hired an engineer in my life. Uh, never built, never built a technical product. I don't write code and I've got $30 million. And so I just went to all of my smartest friends and I just said, please help. And over the course of three years, we built a product that earned the right to go into signal messenger because of the level of uh, cryptography, wow. the level of security. We're the, actually the only outside feature that's ever been introduced in the signal messenger. Wow. And so that was, that was a very high bar that we met. And the way, that we, the way that we did that was just trying to design the most private, most secure, easiest to use cryptocurrency. It's fast. It's carbon negative. It costs almost nothing to send and it works on a cell phone. And payments at light speed. Sorry, yeah. there you for, for those of us listening, I think 2015 yeah. at one point, Ethereum was under a dollar, if I'm not mistaken. And last year it hit almost $5,000. Dollars. <laughs> so if you got into Ethereum I'm, in 2015, I'm, I, I can see why you weren't concerned about living paycheck to paycheck. That's 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 pretty awesome. Uh, and, and then your thoughts on compliance variants you know, around the globe. I'm, I'm very lucky. Yeah. So so around the globe, compliance is wildly different depending on the country you're in. Um, compliance in China is very different than the United mm -hmm. States. Compliance in Europe is very different than the United States. Um, wherever you go, there, there's a different set of rules. And in even in America right now, there's actually no legislation or no law that governs cryptocurrency. Um, it's one of the astounding things about working cryptocurrency is that I'm five years into mobile coin at this point, and there's still no law in the books about how you're supposed to behave with respect to cryptocurrency. So all we can do in the United States is to take the conservative approach. So MobileCoin is actually the only wallet that bans OFAC transactions. We don't allow transactions from North Korea, Iran, Syria, et cetera, all the OFAC nations. And that's a level of compliance that no other cryptocurrency has taken. And we've spent a lot of time building this compliance narrative because we have these amazing privacy features. We want them to be used by the, by, you know, the set of good actors in the world, if that makes sense. It does. Wow. It does. This is cool. So yeah, no, and, and basically really... compliance around the globe is just following the law. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, this is really important, right? I just, I just came back from the Enterprise Digital Asset Summit, right? And we've been spending time talking about digital assets, how, you know, DAOs are being done, how things are being taxed, you know, how collection works, regulations kind of in place. And, and this notion of compliance is, is really important. Uh, and, and so are there rules or other regulations you kind of wish were on the books that would make your life easier? And this is coming from me. I'm a free market capitalist. I really hate regulations in general, right? So, I mean, but what would make your life easier and what kind of standards would make it easier for people to operate? And because you do need rules, right? You need rules to figure out where the black and white rules are and where the gray areas are going to be. Otherwise, you know, we get relegated in a situation where everybody moves to the UAE because they actually have some clear rules as to what's happening. And other countries that don't have clear rules are in a situation where people just aren't, you know, aren't going to innovate or make those risks. So it's a really, really good question. Uh, I think I am most amused by is that the government at a very high level loves privacy. It is something that is deeply entrenched in American values. It's something that allows us to have the freedom to be human and to create and to make new, make new rules, make new culture. And we, we as a people, like humans love privacy. And at the same time, there's very little sort of reasoning about what is okay and what is not okay from a privacy perspective. So, I would love clarity about what is okay from a privacy perspective. And the reason that I ask this, I think it's very, very critical mm -hmm. to think about 
No one would ever transact on the internet without encryption right now. No one would ever transact on the internet without encryption. I frankly think it's insane that we have unencrypted blockchains right now. I think the only ethical thing is to have encryption on the blockchain because it allows you to transact with the privacy that we've been, you know, that we've had for hundreds of years. There's never been a ledger that just broadcasts all of your transaction data. The idea that every payment you would have would not just be between, you know, you, your friend and Venmo, but you, your friend in the entire world. That's crazy. And so Nothing what I want is just Which bring back the level of privacy. That we have. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what I want to bring back is just the level of privacy that we're used to. Hmm. We're not trying to do anything that's different. What we're trying to do is do something reasonable. And so that, that is what we're trying to make at MobileCoin. And I would love clarity from regulators that that's an okay thing to do. Hmm. I think you're ahead of the game. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, Thank you. Okay, Josh. Josh, we're gonna we're gonna transition to our uh, our third guest, and then have you back uh, to to discuss this intersection of disruption and compliance, which is fascinating because each of the guests are bringing a different dimension to it. So we'll be talking to you in a few minutes. Our, All right. Who we have next? Okay, our next guest, and talk about having to shorten a bio. Because no, you just found this guy on the street. That's all you yeah, have to say. No, no, I, I'll try to shorten it to just a few bullets because uh, talk, you may be the most accomplished person we've had ever on our show. Dr. David Bray, Distinguished Fellow, Simmons Center and Principal Lead to Adapt Ventures. Uh, uh, Simmons Center is a nonpartisan policy research center working to promote international security, shared prof, uh, prosperity, and justice. Dr. Bray uh, accepted the leadership role in December 2019 to incubate a new global center with the Atlantic Council. After that, uh, from 2017 to 20, Dr. Bray served as executive director for the People-Centered Internet Coalition, chaired by uh, the Internet's co-originator, -co godfather of Internet, Vint Cerf, focusing on providing support and expertise for community-focused projects and, measurable improved, and measurably improve people's lives using the Internet. For all of the work he's done, and, and this is, again, just a tiny sliver of his bio, uh, Business Insider named Dr. Bray uh, one of the top 24 Americans who are changing the world under 40. And he was named by a young global leader, as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum from 2016 to 2021. He served five plus years in that role. You can now uh, follow uh, uh, the uh, work that Dr. Bray is doing at Stimson Center on Twitter. Welcome back. Welcome back, Dr. Bray, to Disrupt TV. Oh, thanks for having me here, Vala and, and Ray. And I hopefully you've seen with both Sharon and with Josh that, you know, you can be a disruptor and also do play the compliance game. And I actually think that this is the decade ahead in which the disruptors will be playing the compliance game. And it's not an oxymoron because if you look at what's happened with Ukraine, but even before then, we're in an era in which both domestically, internationally, norms we were used to during the 90s and 2000s are getting tossed out the window. And that's okay if we replace them with other norms, but there are no norms replacing it. And if we're not careful, um, it's going to really sort of sort of create sort of chaos in the market, which is never good, and then possibly chaos in societies, which is even worse. And so I, I say, if you ever watch the original MacGyvers and you wonder <laughs> who we worked for, um, it was the Stimson Center. <laughs> oh, tell us, tell, tell us what you're doing that. here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so the Simpson Center was created in the 80s, 1989, when some very forward-leaning members of Congress realized that the breakup at the time of the Soviet Union 
could be really challenging because you'd have a whole lot of former nuclear um, scientists um, looking for jobs. And so the Stimson Center was created to be an operational nonprofit as opposed to mm. um, trying to be one of the, so you know, there's plenty of NGOs that do like identify a problem, get some funds for it, write a paper, proceed, proceed, proceed. They're actually the type where, yes, maybe they will sort of do analysis, but for example, there was an African nation that said, how could we improve our collaboration with our neighbors? Not mm. only did they make proposals on how to do it, they then went and they actually proceeded to buy a rhino sanctuary to then demonstrate that their actual recommendations worked. So they eat their dog food. And so um, ever since then, whether it's actually trying to meet nuclear scientists and say, look, good news is you're never going to build a nuclear device again. What instead can we do to actually encourage you to do other activities, which is responsible for hopefully preventing some of the uh, nuclear proliferation that could be really bad if we didn't address it. But they're also trying to address other issues. Uh, there's another project they're doing in, in Southeast Asia where a combination of crowdsourcing using phones and satellite footage in the event that China decides to release water down, down, down the Mekong Delta, which will cause problems for the nations that are down there, um, they actually can hold them accountable and say, we see you just did this, uh, don't you wanna say anything about it? So it's sort of mm -hmm. a peer pressure approach to global politics. And so for me, I'm excited because in an era in which we're looking for norms, norms in commerce, norms in governance, uh, norms in just how we coexist, we're going to have to have people brave enough to do demonstration projects. And, and believe it or not, I mean, as you know, I mean, government has always been a bit risk averse. And the challenges is trying to find places where you can be bold enough to take those challenges. But even public companies sometimes might say it would be easier if someone does it first and shows it works. Hmm. And then we're willing to adopt it after that. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, uh, you've uh, been a guest on our show um, every year for the last several years, since the inception of the show, six years. Right, I remember and, one of the like episode four, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we just crossed 870 interviews uh, and, and you're, you were number four. You're right. That's, that's, that's stunning to, to think about. But when I look at the last couple of years, just about you know, 2020 to present, when you talk about finding norms, uh, health crisis none of us have experienced in our lifetime led to an economic crisis none of us have experienced in a lifetime. Um, climate, I mean, the US, floods, hurricanes, uh, fires, um, uh, racial inequality, literally watching people murdered on TV live uh, in some instances. Um, and then obviously we went through massive elections, so that process introduced us to mass dissemination of information that were incorrect often right. oh, from the highest levels in our country and, yep. and, and business. Um, so combination of all this leads to a deficit in trust, uh, you know, and so I'm guessing the center is quite busy or has been since you joined. Uh, so why does it feel, and maybe I've answered the question already, that, that it just feels that there's more turbulence right now than, 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 than any time in our, in our, in our lifetime, uh, yep. in my lifetime. Right. What's at stake? Like, I mean, you must feel this awesome weight on your shoulder when you're working at a center that's trying to bring some normalcy and, and vision and future guidance to, to, to all these private and public entities. Uh, clearly, yes, it's a massive responsibility. And, and I can definitely relate to what you're saying, Vala. I would say if it helps people, um, you, you hit the nail on the head that that's in our lifetime. Uh, actually, if you go back to the 1890s to 1910, there were actually lower levels of trust in Congress than there are now. So we've been wow. there before. 
Uh, also mm -hmm. in the 1890s, you might remember, there were these individuals named Pulitzer and Hearst who <laughs> may have sold newspapers that had less than factual headlines relative to the stories, may have actually prompted us to go to war with Spain over disinformation. So disinformation was present there too. Mm -hmm. um, so, 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 you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And it's worth mm. asking, you know, how do we get out of, how do we get out of the 1890s to 1910? Well, unfortunately, we had a world war and we also had the Spanish influenza. So maybe we're going it backwards now. I'm not sure. Um, you no, know, no, and you know, my no, own no, life, no, no. when I did the first episode <laughs> with you, yeah, uh, um, you know, I mean, I responded to the original COVID uh, back in 2003 with the bioterrorism program and also responded to the original monkeypox, which now seems to be back again, too. So, wow. you know, I would say why it feels more challenging now is twofold. One, the, I tell people the good news is we've democratized technology. The bad news is we've democratized technology. So that means individuals can now do things that the CIA and the KGB could only do 30 years ago. That includes the democratization of disinformation. Right. You know, and so we have to figure out new ways of dealing with that, new ways of it. And it's not, tech is not going to save us. Tech is going to be part of the solution with people thinking about the processes that are involved. Um, and so it's also worth noting that the Stimson Center, we have a thing called the Loomis Council. Alfred Loomis made his money in the 1920s. He was kind of like Josh. He, he, he invested in the market, made a lot of money, got a weird feeling about the market in the late 1920s, pulled his money out right before the market crashed. And he looks like a genius. He's sitting on Rockefeller level wealth. And what he did was he invested in a thing in New York called Tuxedo Park, where he invited scientists from overseas, including Einstein and others. This was back in the 1930s and early 1940s with the belief wow. that technology might actually help us deal with problems. And so when the war in Europe started in World War II, he went down to DC and he said, you know, there's this thing called radar. The British have actually invented it, not us, but we can miniaturize it, protect our convoys, and actually have a way of having a defense against the Nazis. And of course, DC did a typical thing and said, you don't know what you're talking about and sent them packing. But he was the cousin of Henry Stimson, who was the Secretary of War. And so mm -hmm. they did an in run around the bureaucracy to use technology to actually help win the war in Europe, so much that when the war was over, he and FDR were credited with playing a massive role and actually was the predecessor to DARPA. His tuxedo park later was the frownship for what was done with DARPA. So one of the things I'm excited about is the domain now is not just governments. The domain is now businesses. Mm -hmm. And so what role can businesses play in governing, not, not, not governments, but governing, setting norms on the international stage that makes it so that China and Russia are less likely to want to shoot down a satellite because their fates are tied to what that satellite does. Mm -hmm. uh, and that could include food and water. I mean, what we don't realize, and that's what I love about what Sharon's showing, I mean, the reality is green jobs shouldn't know borders, shouldn't even know political. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. say that green should not be a blue or red issue. If you do green jobs domestically, you do green jobs overseas, you're providing stability to people. You're making it less likely for them to be dissatisfied. Also, if you do green jobs, you're more likely to actually address the food and water shortages in advance so we don't have to have conflicts or send militaries to try and defend things. And so to me, you know, in some respects, it's always it always takes things getting to a head before mm -hmm. people say we really need to do something about it. And so I, I hear what you're saying, Bala, that it seems challenging. But if anything, I find that as, as a source of, OK, now it's time to gear up because we're the cowboy. Yeah. That's awesome. Ray, let's get Sharon uh, and, and Josh, because Dr. Bray just talked about ESG compliance and, and good job opportunities. I would love to hear Sharon's perspective in terms of the linkage between uh, ESG compliance and, and good jobs. Knowing right now there's 12 million open jobs in the U.S. Inflation just came in at north of 8%, most in the last 40 years. So good jobs right now really matter. 
So they're on time of good jobs. Absolutely. Quality and sustainable jobs. And mm. it goes back to sort of these 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 false paradoxes. Who says that a quality, sustainable job that actually is high paying can also be green? We're smart. You know, we can create that. Right. Um, to get to the connection between ESG, uh, impact investing and green jobs, I need to take you back a couple of steps to resilience. Why does resilience matter? Okay, so resilience matters because, believe it or not, according to the Stimson Center, resilience right on par with climate mitigation should be the number one investment priority in the world today. So if you go to the Stimson Center's website and you look at the Alliance for a Climate Resilient Earth, ACRE, um, that's what they say. If you talk to the U.S. Department of Defense, Transportation, Energy, um, and you look at what our nation's uh, strategy is with respect to national security, particularly related to climate, you will see that climate is a top three threat to U.S. national security and resilience is the imperative. So there's a resilience imperative. All the smart people agree. All the smart people at the McKinsey Global Institute and the Stimson Center agree, right? So we're in good company here. And so as a person who's been in international foreign policy, looking at national security, climate, for the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, I realized that if we were going to get this Build Back Better thing right, hmm. then we had to understand what are the number one threats that are going to prevent us from getting the Build Back Better right. And that's how I landed on resilience. So I started doing all this research and there's all these resilience indexes, but nobody's using that stuff. Nobody really understands. No one's doing anything. So I wanted to do a Joshua a Joshua Goldbard on this, you know, I was wanting to take a page out of Joshua's book. I was like, why are people not making this smart and easy? Why are we not thinking about the interface so that we can make it less complex? And so that people at the local level will actually use these tools and become more resilient. Um, Vala, you mentioned the storm, the big freeze in Texas, half the crops died, half the animals died. How do we begin to, how do we begin to use um, space technology, GIS technologies, mm -hmm. right? We've got all this advancing technology. We've got AI. Why can't we connect the dots to say, hey, there's another big freeze coming. If you do this, this, and this, and this, you're going to be prepared and lives and livelihoods are going to be safe. I kept looking for this and it wasn't there. So the green jobs machine is the world's first resilience AI. And Josh, you need to call a sister because I got more than three pages and I need a, a lot less than 30 million. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, I also think that Sharon and Josh are Loomis council members. So they are our MacGyvers for the 21st century. So listen, uh, yeah. I got into Ethereum when it was a few hundred dollars and I thought I was a genius. Josh got in when it was a buck. No, so that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We need to get Josh over here on this. Yeah. And so, and so the green, so that's the what. So the green jobs machine is a resilience AI platform. We want to make it easy. We want to gamify. We're bringing in gaming theory, behavior tech, because if you got all these cool tools, you know, and no one's using the stuff, then what's the point? So you got to get people into this. Everybody needs to be doing it and it needs to be global. Um, but the green jobs is what comes out of the back end. Mm -hmm. It's part of the how. So when you're rolling into communities and you're like, hey, we show up in Texas and we're saying to the cattle ranchers, listen, that big freeze hurt you. Where's your pain? How can we serve? Mm -hmm. And so we're talking to people who don't care about climate, 
who don't care about ESG. And you know what? They're all getting on board because we are talking about resilience, how to make communities stronger, how to build back better, you know, how to make sure that when, you know, that you're prepared for and can thrive in disruption and adverse climate conditions. And they're like, heck yeah, come on over here, gal. We want some of that. And that's how we're rolling this around. And so we're pre-seed, we're, you know, we've been working on this for about a year and a half, but we're really, really super excited about the way that this is being embraced in communities. We've got a couple of strategic pilots, some of those demonstration projects David was talking about, and people who would not talk to us if we went in talking about ESG compliance. You know, that's they a great point, right? Run you out of town, but they're talking. They won't run you out of town, and but that's a great point. I mean, we how do we improve that? Our ability to work across sectors, political groups, uh, nations, uh, you know, people have, you know, a really, really diverse set of interests um, to actually get to better solutions around tech, around data. I'll start with you, David, and then we'll see what everyone else thinks uh, along the team. Sure. So. I mean, I think, I mean, Sharon hit the nail on the head. I would, I mean, I would, and this is why I love working with her, um, come for the jobs stay for the resiliency. You know, the reality is we all, you know, I think of it as, as Milo's, Maslow's hierarchy. We all want to have basic needs met. We want to make sure we can provide food. We can provide shelter, provide for our families. We want to have a better job. If you, you know, that's not a partisan issue. That's not a one nation versus another nation issue. You can identify win-wins. And so I, I so it's basically simply come for the jobs, stay for the, for the resiliency. And then with, uh, with what Josh is doing with mobile coin, it's the idea that this is nothing new. This is basically giving you back the same privacy plus compliance that we have with cash that we lost when we moved to <clears throat> Bitcoin <clears throat> and other cryptocurrencies that remain nameless. Because guess what? They're monetizing that digital exhaust. Bala, just telling you. I know you and I have had conversations. We just need to get back to the idea that, that never you know, we need a rule of law, but we also need privacy. Yeah, no, it, it's, it, and, I, and I love the uh, just understanding the power of language. Uh, as Sharon talked about, you walk into and speak to a group of farmers and you start with 17 ESGs uh, and the UN versus understanding the jobs to be done. And that's to get harvest and get income and support family and community. So I think I think that's important. Now, understanding the jobs to be done and, and you know, I come from a company where we hire thousands of uh, college students and we try to invest as early as possible to build our community with recent graduates from you know universities and colleges can you talk about do you see signs that resiliency and impact uh and 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 understanding that values create value or, or business can be the greatest platform for change Are this, is this being taught to to students and and, and how can we as leaders uh, really plant those seeds early on so that, uh, you know, I have a 19-year-old, 16-year-old, and 12-year-old. My 19-year-old who went to business school in Boston is the one who got me into uh, even more into crypto because she joined the blockchain club. And, uh, and I thought to myself, wow, they, these 19-year-olds these know so much more than I do. So, so reverse mentoring became such an important concept and it has been for me. Can you talk about how... It, it, programs where we're investing in, in, in our future by, by partnering with colleges and universities to create a resilient army of men and women who are going to help us save the planet. 
Is that a question for me? Sure, please, run and then Josh afterwards. Yeah, go sure. Oh, okay. So listen, um, Val, you've said you've said something that I think is key, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, and that's values. I mean, I think so often, and this actually goes to Ray's question: like, how do you cut across all these things that divide us to find that common ground so that we can, you know, stop being stuck on stupid? and deal with the existential threats that are going to take us all out, then we can be like different and we can fight later. Right. But let's deal with the stuff that really is important. Um, and I think so often we, we think that we've got shared values, but we don't. Mm -hmm. And so um, to your point about universities, listen, I think that if you look at the uh, capacity that's sitting in the private sector to really be mobilized, to deal with a lot of the things that we really care about, um, there's about 15% spare capacity. But if you look at globally, the amount of capacity, intellectual capacity, people capacity, yeah. that's sitting within academic institutions, it is like 200%, if that's the thing. And so all we've got to do is cut across some of those divides and say, you know what, but you can't, I mean, I teach, I teach at the business school. I teach project finance at the University of Cape Town at the business school. And let me tell you something as a academic, I can tell you, if you go in and you try to collaborate in an academic institution, it doesn't work. I'm the professor of this. Don't get on my turf. Da, 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 da. And so it's the same stuff. It goes back to Ray's point. But, but if you go in and you say, listen, here's the brief. This is what I want you to work on. Let's work with us, understand resilience, do your academic research. Here's the body of knowledge that we're building on and you're going to like get lots of awards and it's going to be cool. We can get it done and we are getting it done. And, and, and the Stimson Center and other kinds of global organizations are helping us cut across those divides. Let's go to Josh. How are you seeing this as well, especially in the uh, finance DeFi world and where you live? So I will say that you know, the children are our future the youth are the people that teach us and calibrate us towards reality. And we really rely on youngsters to help us think about what's coming next in the world. A lot of the technology that we use in cryptocurrency was written by kids straight out of school. I mean, uh, there, there are a number of innovations that MobileCoin uses that were written by people that, you know, were 21, 20 years old at the time that they made, that they made the new math. And so I think a lot about the children are teaching us what's coming next the youth are teaching us what's coming next all the time and so if you want to stay on the cutting edge you can look towards tradition to make sure that you know what you're doing aligns with compliance and, and aligns with the values of uh you know the the elders and, the, and the, the people that have brought us to where we are but if you want us the cutting edge you have to listen to the youth and that doesn't mean just listening to them just sort of you know taking in the memes it means working with them. It means helping to develop them. It means allowing them into your organization and allowing them to change agents within the organization. And so this is a, a difficult thing to give up because a lot of times I, I think we, we have hubris and we, we believe that we always have the right answer. But I think really powerful organizations are constantly questioning whether they have the right answer all of the time. And so I think that the youth teach us that. They teach us what is really going on and they help us to build things that we never could have imagined before. The entire industry of cryptocurrency depends on youngsters imagining new math. Yeah. I mean, what, the question was, what if we could do that? What if we could do that? Why can't we do that? Right. I mean, those are the big questions you got to yeah. ask. And, you know, and, and, and even on a foreign policy and geopolitical dimension, David, like, where do you see that? 
So well, uh, I guess I mean I couldn't say anything better than what both Josh and Sharon say. So I'll end it with more of a personal note that I am, as you know, I'm a now a proud father of a five year old who is beginning <laughs> to ask questions about you know when did time start and and and, and you know you know you know why can't these people get along and things like that. So I, I would say maybe when at the end of the day, what we start. all need to do is is find our inner five year old and really not be held back by well we tried that before and it didn't work in the nineties or didn't work in the two thousands. We need to just go back to, you know, our inner five-year-old. And like you said, ask, why can't we do this? What if we did this? What happens if this occurs? Uh, because in an era in which norms are being tossed out, that's liberating in some degree, but we've got to bring something back. There's still got to be some civil way of interacting and it can be a new way. But I think that's where like Josh had listened to the young, uh, as Sharon says, you know, go to where the people are hungry for something to help them move forward. Um, and I think that will allow us to get past what right now feels like a very turbulent era. So let's let's take this to I, another level. And Josh, please weigh in. And Sharon, you, you guys are talking about a beginner's mindset. When I think about a five-year-old, a five-year-old is free of prejudice. A five-year-old is curious. A five-year-old is uh, experiments. Uh, they fall down, they get back up. They, they, they face fear, uh, you know, uh, with a smile. How, how do you advise? Business leaders, I mean, Josh, you look like you're 21, but let's, uh, <laughs> and that's a compliment. I guess playing in crypto, you don't age. Uh, uh, but, but, but how do you advise uh, legacy companies, senior executives to approach emerging technologies, whether it's metaverse, blockchain, crypto, uh, you know, uh, Internet of Things, quantum computing, we can go on and on and apply technology in a purposeful way to really, as Sharon mentioned, guide farmers in terms of how to produce more yield. My company's looking to plant a trillion trees while actually using machine learning algorithms to tell us, uh, injecting weather information, where's the most uh, 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 beneficial place to plant these trees in terms of long-term thinking and growth and yield. So, so how do you adopt a beginner's mindset? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you say to folks to get them to think like a five-year-old a bit, um, so that they can experiment in this new world of ours? So, uh, I think there's a couple things I think about here. One, um, no matter how much you want to, you can't go back to being a five-year-old mentally. It's, it's impossible. You can't, you can't have like complete beginner's mind. And so, it's about defining what acceptable risk is. And I think a lot of times people are actually way unreasonable about risk in either direction. They are either too conservative or too liberal when it comes to risk. And so I think that you have to define what is the smallest possible experiment you can take on. And, and is, is, this, is this through scenario planning? Like what's a tool you can use to understand acceptable risk? Well, so when you're doing something novel, determining what acceptable risk is, is very difficult. Yeah. And so I think it's just the minimum amount of, you know, throw away capital, throw away energy. I'm going to spend an hour on this. Got it. I'm going to spend, okay. you know, a tenth of a percent of my net worth on this. And it's, it's just like, what is the minimum amount that you can emotionally just let go <laughs> of and say, I'm, I'm, this is valued at zero for me. I'm just going to spend it on this moving on. And then if it works, you invest a little more, but you have to define the minimum experiment that will actually get you an answer. And a lot yeah. of times that's more than an hour. So I think determining what is worth doing yeah. is a very difficult task because there's so many things you can do in this yeah. life. This goes so, back to education because uh, you know, to establish solid critical thinking and to be able to formulate risk reward equations in your head. I mean, again, 2015, you decided, you know what, a few dollars I can put towards Ethereum. 
but that was only that was only because my friend said if you lose it, I'll give it back to you. <laughs> oh, uh, see, risk reward. You have zero risk, all reward. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so my friend created a zero risk scenario for me, That's and that was the right. only reason. We need good friends I, like yours. Yeah. You know, so Sharon, how do you build critical thinking? Like, what's the? Is that a muscle that erodes over time? I've got a different, you know, Josh, I've been down with you on this program. You know, I've, you know, you talking, I'm busy scribbling and I'm feeling that hat, the hat, you are killing it. The hat is working for me, bro. Uh, But I got to like, just go a little bit, you know, to the side on this one. I, I, I do think that you can bring some of the humility um, that so you look what are the attributes of a five-year-old okay so yeah no you know we've got to be system thinkers about that about this and so maybe that's not like you know what the five-year-old was doing but you know the way that I so you know I set up the Center for Disruptive Tech I brought help to bring Singularity University to South Africa and then I set up the Center for, uh, for Disruptive Tech to disrupt them and to make not access to the kind of knowledge that you're that we're talking about here to democratize access mm-hmm. because small companies that can't afford to go to Silicon Valley, needed to have access to it, right? And so here is what I do. I do start by taking a page out of Exponential Organizations, which was written by, you know, Yuri Van Geest and Salim and those guys um, who are all affiliated with, with Singularity University anyway. And, and I love the idea of having a massive transformative purpose of, of, of really saying, what is your North Star? Like, you know, why do you exist? And, and then the next thing, once we're clear about that, direction, alignment, commitment, something I'll call that. But, but then once you're clear about your MTP, I think the next thing, and it does go back to something that Josh talked about when he said, you know, why can't you, why can't we just have this platform that's user friendly that where everything I need in order to access, you know, the cryptocurrencies that I want is just like in one place and it's very cool, right? And so, so the next thing I think we need to do um, as business leaders and other kinds of leaders is to ask, how can we serve? Which is exactly what we're doing in the green jobs machine. You show up and you say, okay, it's too complex. I'm going to build a platform and here's mobile, you know, the mobile coin. Right, great. We're doing the same thing. I think it goes back to Ray's question. If we show up with humility and with all of this technology and all this smart that we have, but we we are humble and we we don't have all the answers, but we have a heart that's willing. We have heads that work, and we've got hands that we're willing to put to use. And we say, how can we serve? I think we can cut across a lot of things that divide, but I think we can also learn, and then we can go to bed smarter. And which is what Warren Buffett says is one of the things he tries to do every day: go to bed smarter. We go to bed smarter and then we wake up and we say, we're going to build a machine that's going to serve people. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, lightning round. Got a few seconds here. How do you guys keep up? There's a lot going on. Regulatory, ESG, tech trends. Like, Sharon, what do you read? Uh, What's what's important for you? Who do you follow? Uh, What should we do to get uh, more aware? Well, one of the things I'm reading, I do read a lot. And one of the things I'm reading right now is Kim Robinson's Ministry of the Future. I love it. It's a great book. I would recommend it highly uh, for um, for anyone who cares about life and cares about life on our planet. And then the other thing that I do that I think is absolutely imperative, and I think it's for all of us here who are like, go, 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 is I try to incorporate in my day some time to stop and actually reflect. 
some time to think, some time to play with David's little five-year-old. We're so busy that, you know, we don't take time to just be a kid and have fun. And so much of the creative inspiration and actually the deep thinking that I'm able to tap into comes when I have time to just reflect. Got it. For this following uh, climate change, uh, you know, post climate agreement that's what kim's uh, book is about so josh what do you follow uh what do you keep in, how do you keep in touch how do you look at tech trends and what hap what happens so i got two things um so number one is that the best source of news that i have found on the internet is still hacker news it is still the single best place that i have found for like wow. high hit rate for quality information every wow. day the second one is a little bit more surprising i think I get a lot of news and a lot of like what's happening in the world from TikTok. <laughs> I know that seems crazy. I know no, that seems crazy, no. but that is no. that is the livest feed in my life. It used to be Reddit, and TikTok is just way more live. When things are happening, they're happening there really fast. Yeah, yeah. It's right. not, it doesn't surprise me that it's social platform for me. My personal learning network is Twitter. Um, yeah, and 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 but it's you know if, if, whether it's Clubhouse, Discord, whatever, it's different form factors. But the, the the source of knowledge, insights at the speed that I'm looking for comes from Twitter and TikTok. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise if you me. want 30 seconds of live video from something that's happening right now, it's on TikTok before it's on Twitter today. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. All right, David, what do you think? What what what's yours? Well, I guess I'll have to be the country. Uh, Library of Congress. I love But I would say I try to go to places. So obviously I'm looking at global impact. So I go to France 24, not for coverage of France, but for actually coverage of world events. I go to Al Jazeera, not for coverage in the Middle East, but actually for world events. Uh, BBC News as well. And I highly recommend actually if folks don't go to France 24. It has some of the best um, balanced coverage of things that are happening in the world. But the other thing I would also want to say, um, and in Vala, you mentioned this, you mentioned how, you, you know, you were talking about your company and how they're going to be using AI to figure out where best to plant the trees. Mm -hmm. I might offer that Sharon might have a data source where there might also be people that could be employed to plant said trees. So maybe later we should talk. <laughs> anyway, uh, and for me, at the end of the day, where I get my best source of information is actually from the different perspectives of colleagues and friends. And I intentionally try to have a diversity of colleagues and friends with different perspectives. If anything, it's because it's, it's, what I want to know is not just what I've read on France 24 or Al Jazeera yeah. or BBC News, but then I want to see how those different friends have internalized it and, and, and what is resonating with them and what's not resonating with them. So I just consider myself lucky to be colleagues with all of you and others. Uh, we actually have a very lively signal uh, group that is a, an interesting place to get these perspectives. Is, but for me, it's a combination of both what you read and then what you hear from your colleagues. I try to actually avoid video because more and more they show that it shuts down the actual processing of what's happened versus mm -hmm. reading about it. I've had many spirited discussions with Dr. Bray. I've lost many dinner bets with Dr. <laughs> Bray. <laughs> we got to figure out what we're going to do for Ray's next big event in October, Vala. And I'm not going to ever bet Joshua because uh, I can't afford to feed him. One of us is going to have to buy the You want to see what it is, Josh? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I have a bet with David Bray about the United States government issuing a central bank digital currency. He's mm. dead set that they're going to do it, I believe, before the end of 2023. And no, 2023. Well, the end of the administration. So the current administration. administration yeah. So, 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 so let me tell you what I lost. Bitcoin, Bitcoin was around 1000 or so, and I bet Dr. Bray that it was going to hit 10000 but my timeline was much shorter. I, I think I said in six months, and it ended up being 
a year and a half too. And then of course it exploded past the 10K mark. I lost the bet, but I still feel like you I, was <laughs> <laughs> I was just too, I was too aggressive. I was too aggressive. I am, by the way, Dr. Bray, I am willing to make a hundred K uh, bet on, on we can take that offline not a 100k bet sorry 100k price point for bitcoin bet let's go there let's go there celtics warriors Vala. celtics celtics and seven Celtics and if seven. They win tonight, Celtics and six. Oh, no, Warriors gonna win. Warriors gonna do it. <laughs> oh, San Francisco guy. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. No, I I'll get you on that one, Josh. I'm definitely <laughs> with you on that one. We are. Uh, yeah, this is interesting. All right. Well, hey, this is amazing. We've got three amazing guests. I'm glad we can bring them together in the format here. Sharon McPherson, thank you so much. You can follow her at McSharon. Uh, Sharon. And of course, you can follow Josh Goldbart at the PBX guy. And of course, Dr. David Bray, you can follow him at the Stimson Center. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, David, uh, for an awesome show. So thanks for being here. Cool. Whoa. All right. <laughs> that was. Uh... That was so you guys awesome. in the green room. Uh, that was awesome. Yeah. That was, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's hard to have three big brains dropping nuggets of wisdom at you, you know, concurrently. So I got to tell you, uh, normally after a show, I'm exhausted. Right now, I'm shattered because my head is uh, <laughs> has been expanded. Okay. Ray, uh, do, do, do your best to summarize this. Uh, oh, no, we're still doing that? Oh, you know, God. Well, I thought I got out of it. Intersection of disruption and compliance. Uh, and we saw it from, from a climate perspective and jobs to cryptocurrencies and, 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 uh, and, and obviously use of technology and data and how governments can do a better job to serve all stakeholders. But what are your thoughts? No, there's there's a massive tug of war going on between stakeholder and shareholder. Uh, we're seeing this play out in different types and parts of the markets. Uh, investors and certain investor classes are pushing very hard on ESG, um, and you know the pendulum shift has shifted. Um, it's hard to say what's going to happen next, but there are a lot of things that we can do to make a difference. And, and I think people are trying to figure out what the right balance is. I think uh, Sharon's point on spectrum was very important. People on different parts of the spectrum, uh, people worried about the, uh, the timeline to get there. We're facing some of that. Europe's seen the timeline impacts of what happens when you move to green energy transition without having resiliency. Mm -hmm. You end up with really high gas prices, high energy prices. You potentially put yourself in a position where uh, economic stability and national security are, are at risk. And so, so we're, we've got to learn from those lessons as well as we build those back into the equation. But there are a lot of green jobs to be had. And I think if I could take micro dirty jobs and put, her, put him with Sharon together, I think we get some very interesting, uh, you know, combos and uh, intersectionality. I think it'd be pretty fun. Uh, what, what's happening also on the uh, Bitcoin pieces, like as I'm here at consensus, right, it's all about gas fees, zero gas fees, getting to net negative as opposed to net zero. People are really concerned about it. The crypto community of anyone is really, really worried about, you know, making sure that they are environmentally friendly, and, and you definitely see that in all the discussions here. Uh, we're definitely seeing a lot of movement as we go from centralization to decentralization. And that, that really takes us to the point on where the uh, regulation
regulations are important, mm -hmm. right? Regulations are going to play a role in, in defining the guardrails. I think we're going to need more of them. I hate regulation. I know I need to love regulation a little bit more, especially in this case, but the rules have to be defined. And, and I think that's also going to affect the geopolitical uh, issues. And I think where Dave, where Dr. David Bray has been talking about this, I mean, there are a lot of implications in how those standards are being created, how we actually come together. But I think the important piece is we're in the middle of what we call the great refactoring. And you've heard me talk about this, you know, in the era of great strife these last two years, there's a lot of, and you know what? I like to hang out with humans that are optimistic and we've got a whole bunch of great folks that we always interview that really see what's going to happen. What, what's the huge opportunities in the world? And that's really about what kind of future we can leave for the next generation. And, and I really think if we do a good job of that, we'll have something there. And I think all three guests put that together. So sure. Um, sure. stop the jump. This is like, for sure. well, I totally agree with you in the long run, the future is decided by the optimist. Uh, I, I have lifelong experience with that. We're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Bray next week, episode 282. And uh, in addition to Dr. David Bray, we're going to have Lindsay Rodman, former adjunct senior fellow, military veterans and society program. And we're also going to have Dr. Frederick Braun, chief evangelist in digital transformation at UNIVAP. So, Ooh, internet and space. Internet and space next week. And Dr. Bray will help us anchor the conversation much like this uh, episode 281. We've just crossed 870 interviews, Ray. By the end of this calendar year, we'll cross 900 interviews. And if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you, everyone, for watching, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. See you guys in the